There's a hidden message inside the Christmas story. It's a shocking, prophetic message about the state of the world and you, and you can't ignore it. So let's explore it. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, here to shut down the enemy's lies in your life, and I do it live on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. And whether you're here live or listening through the podcast, thanks for being here. And, you know, we're here at the end of this year, and we made it because of your generosity. So thank you all who gave this year so that we could be here. I'm looking forward to what God does in the new year. For one, my new book, Permission to Be Imperfect, comes out in April, April 9th to be exact. And lots of new ministry opportunities will come with that. So I'm looking forward to that. But here's something special for those of you who say, I want to help you, Kyle. From now through the end of the year, I will email a personal video blessing to anyone who gives a special year-end donation of any amount. You'll receive the emailed video addressed to you on or before December 30th. You can go to kylewinkler.org give, kylewinkler.org give to donate. And of course, your donations are always tax deductible, always appreciated. And then look for that email with your personal video blessing, like I said, on or before December 31st. Okay. Do you have a favorite Christmas hymn? For like the last decade, every year during the Christmas season, a line from one of the traditional hymns kind of sticks with me. And those of you who have been with me for a while, like years, you might remember the line I sang, if you could call it singing, when I was a guest on a Christmas special on TBN. The line was from God rest ye merry gentlemen. You know, it goes, remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. That's a great line. I also love the line, God and sinners reconciled from hark the herald angels sing. It's a huge statement right there too. But right now I'm thinking of a line toward the beginning of O Holy Night. Do you know it? Because long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul felt its worth. I'll spare you the rest of my singing. It goes on to talk about the thrill of hope that this brought the weary world and how it was the breaking of a new glorious morn. I love this line because it encapsulates the way Jesus saved us all from Satan's power and the way that God and sinners were reconciled. And really, it's the message that's foreshadowed by so much of the Old Testament from its rituals, laws, festivals, and of course, its prophecies. It's the message that just about every detail of the Christmas story points to, and it's really fascinating. So I have to show you. because. Not only will it make you think of Christmas and the Christmas story differently, but I think it's going to blow the Bible wide open for you too. Because as Jesus himself said, the scriptures all point to him and to what he came to do. And excuse the pun, but the Christmas story is pregnant with these pointers. 
We're going to walk through Luke's version of the story because it's the most detailed and for good reason. As you can read in Luke chapter 1, he wrote this to someone named Theophilus after speaking to many eyewitnesses who testified to everything that people were talking about regarding Jesus. Luke's gospel is really a collection of eyewitness stories that he put in here for Theophilus. Now, we don't really know who Theophilus was. Luke called him most honorable Theophilus, which probably means that he was some Roman leader who needed more convincing about the events and ministry of Jesus. So that's why Luke goes into such details in his gospel. His letter was a means to persuade Theophilus or to confirm to him things about Jesus and things about the faith. But even Theophilus's name has meaning in this story, meaning for all of us. Theophilus means loved by God. So if you're following along with me in Luke chapter 1, you could read verse 3 as saying, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you. You honored one who are loved by God. So I say that's to you too. And I say here in Luke's gospel, God's love is foundational to everything that follows, which is going to make sense when you see what follows what's hidden in the Christmas story. Luke sets the stage for the Christmas story with a story that pretty well represents most of the Old Testament. In verse 5, he introduces a Jewish priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who is also part of a priestly lineage. Verse 6, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. Now, like I said, this reflects much of the Old Testament because it reflects a time in human history when righteousness and standing with God was based upon commandment keeping. And nobody was more responsible for commandment keeping than Jewish priests. A man like Zechariah was responsible for serving God in the temple, and Luke actually says that's where he was. He was serving God in the temple, burning incense. And incense was just a way back then of helping to ensure that people's prayers reached God's ears. So priests had all kinds of things to do to make sure that people stayed in good standing with God and to keep their prayers heard by God and all of that kind of stuff. But here's the problem. All the sacrificing and commandment keeping didn't work to provide Zechariah and his wife with the ultimate blessing. You see, as the story goes, it says they were unable to have a child. The Bible says that Elizabeth could not conceive. The message here, which is really the message of much of the Old Testament, is that all the rule following, commandment keeping, sacrificing in the world cannot produce blessing, and it certainly cannot produce life. Didn't work for them, and that's what God was trying to show. It's God who freely gives his blessings and bestows life as a gift of grace, and that's how the story turns. Because in the midst of his priestly duties, an angel of the Lord appears, and it's Gabriel, 
and he's going to appear later in this story. But in verse 13, Gabriel says to a startled Zechariah, don't be afraid. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. Now, this right here is bigger than you realize. First, note that Gabriel says, God has heard your prayer. Not God has seen your work. So the son being promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth is not a blessing that they've earned in any way. It's a gift of grace. And that's evidence all the more by the name John. That's because John means God is gracious. You see, this is the story of Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist. John was a gift of God's grace. And as the angel Gabriel told Zechariah, John was sent to prepare for God's ultimate gift of grace. And as we'll get to later in this message, he also proclaimed what would be the ultimate demonstration of God's grace. The gift, obviously, is Jesus. He's the ultimate gift of grace. And though there are many more details about John's birth that you can read there in Luke 1, I want to get to the details of Jesus' birth so you can see just what John was sent to prepare and proclaim. Story starts in Luke 2, verse 1. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their ancestral towns to register for this census. What's the importance of that? Well, Luke goes into this detail because it explains how Jesus fulfilled a prophecy. You see, for some 700 or so years before Jesus, God's people held to a prophecy from Micah that their Messiah would come from the little town of Bethlehem. You can look that prophecy up in Micah 5.2 if you'd like to read it yourself. Well, since Mary's new husband Joseph was a descendant of King David, who was from Bethlehem, when the census was ordered, Joseph had to travel from Nazareth, where he was living at the time, back to his homeland of Bethlehem to be counted. And as the new wife of Joseph, Mary had to go with him to be counted too. The challenge was that Bethlehem was a several-day journey from Nazareth. They didn't have cars. They had camels. And Mary was about nine months pregnant at the time. Imagine that. Yet she goes on the journey. Now pause for a minute. Just to marvel at the timing of these events. It's one of my favorite illustrations of God's promise to order the steps of his people. Because a little longer in Nazareth, and Jesus would have been born somewhere else. Somewhere not in accordance with the prophecy. Yet by no planning on Mary's part and definitely no intention by the emperor to fulfill any prophecy, Mary and Joseph are brought to Bethlehem by a census of all things at a pretty bad time in Mary's life there, an uncomfortable time, but it was just the right time and it probably brought just the right amount of bumps for her to go into labor when they got to Bethlehem. And you know, isn't this how many of us find God's plans fulfilled in our lives too? More often than not, it's the inconvenient 
events, the frustrating circumstances, or the people who wander across our paths at the strangest moments that end up working like a divine hand moving us from here to here to here to here to here. It leads us right where we need to be, right where God always wanted us. And Bethlehem was right where Mary and Joseph needed to be right at that right moment. But it's more than because Joseph's lineage was there, and it's more than because a prophecy happened to name Bethlehem as the birthplace. You see, there's something about Bethlehem that points to God's plan all along. As only God could know, events were orchestrated throughout the centuries so that by the time of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem was the city where lambs purchased for sin sacrifice in the temple were born and raised. It was the city of David, but it was also the city of lambs. In fact, every firstborn male lamb in Bethlehem was set aside to later be delivered to Jerusalem for the sacrifice for sins. Now, of course, if you know the rest of Jesus' story, specifically the Easter story, then things should really be starting to click here. Jesus was the firstborn. He was called the Lamb of God. He was born in Bethlehem. He was sacrificed in Jerusalem. Come on. Nothing with God is coincidental. He's a master of details here. In this story and in your story. But back to this story. In Luke 2, verse 6, Luke writes, And while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for her baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. We've already discussed Mary's labor in Bethlehem, but not where in Bethlehem and why. Again, Luke provides the details. That census that sent them to Bethlehem in the first place, well, it sent a lot of other people there too, all at the same time. So the inns, the hotels in the town, they were taken by all the other visitors. I mean, ladies, can you imagine this? Nine months pregnant, after a bumpy several-day trip by foot or camel, you go into labor. That's bad enough. Adding to the challenge is that when you go into labor, there's no place for you to deliver your baby inside. They're all full. So you're forced to deliver it outside in a shelter for the animals of the guests that were staying at one of the inns. You know, today we have parking lots. They didn't have cars back then. Like I said, they had camels. So they parked their camels in animal shelters next to these inns. That's likely where Mary and Joseph were forced to go. Definitely not a royal birth fit for a king, right? More like a royal mess. But there's a message in the mess. And more specifically, there's a message in the manger. And when you think of a manger, what do you think? Probably the wooden crib that you see in most nativity sets, right? The Greek word for manger is fonte, and it's really a feeding trough for animals. Like I said, not exactly the kind of thing fit for a king, much less the king of the universe, but a feeding trough inside of a shelter for animals. Well, that is the kind of thing that's fit for a lamb 
You know what else you'd expect near an animal shelter? You'd expect shepherds. And so Luke continues in verse 8. That night there were shepherds staying in the field nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Remember, this is Bethlehem. It's the place where firstborn lambs were raised to later be taken to Jerusalem. And every year, when autumn turns to winter, it's the natural time for sheep to give birth. It's known as lambing season. Jesus would have been born in lambing season. And back then, this time was obviously active for shepherds. They stood watch by night so that no predators would ravage their flocks. But they were also there to tend to the birth of infant lambs. Since these firstborn sacrificial lambs had to be without defect, that's what the law said, the sin sacrifice of these lambs, they had to be spotless. So the shepherds worked to ensure that they were born without damage, they inspected them for defects, and they protected them from injury. And part of what they did to ensure their protection is that they immediately wrapped the newborn lamb in swaddling clothes. Come on, you should be getting some revelation here now. But there's more. While on their night watch, probably awaiting the arrival of a newborn lamb, an angel of the Lord appeared with a radiance that lit up the field, I'm sure. Verse 10. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. He said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Got to pause again and spell this out just a little bit more. The Greek word for good news is also translated as gospel. I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel is what the angel was saying, and it will bring great joy to all people. So, friend, if you ever needed proof that the gospel is for everyone, this is it. There are other proofs, but this is a good one right there. And the angel announced that the Savior, the Messiah, is born just where it was long prophesied that he would be. Bethlehem, the city of David, the city of lambs. And so the angel continues, verse 12, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. In other words, the angel says to these Jewish shepherds, out of your long night, your long-awaited final sacrificial lamb is born. Now go quickly to do what you were designed for. Go inspect my lamb, and you will see that he is perfect, pure, spotless, without defect, and if I might add something that they couldn't have fathomed at the time, also destined for sacrifice in Jerusalem. Let's go back to the story. Verse 13. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Now this is a message of all messages. It's what the Lamb's work would produce. It's peace. But maybe not the way you think. Not in the way I used to think. For years, I read this as if the angels announced peace on earth, like the absence of problems or fighting, 
And I'm like, well, that hasn't happened. I mean, I wish that were the case, but it hasn't happened. Not yet, at least. That's not what they meant, though. The angels were announcing peace with God. But not just peace for those who please him. That's the other way I used to read this. I thought that maybe the angels announced the ability for people to please God, like to work real hard and you can be on his good side. But that's not the good news. That's the old news. Their announcement of good news is that God came to bring peace for all people. The King James Version puts it a little bit clearer than the NLT that I'm reading out of. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men and women, of course. Goodwill toward people. So that's what this was an announcement of. The angels were announcing that the Lamb of God has come. And with him, he brings peace. He restores peace and goodwill between God and humans, all humans. It's called reconciliation. And how's that possible? Because he came as a firstborn spotless lamb to do what firstborn spotless lambs were destined to do all throughout the Old Covenant which is to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin. But unlike the animal lambs before him, Jesus' sacrifice wouldn't have a temporary effect. No, Jesus came to do just what his cousin John the Baptist proclaimed he would do. Remember, John's name means God is gracious. His birth was the product of God's grace, and he was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And when he met Jesus at the start of Jesus' ministry, He proclaimed what would be the ultimate demonstration of grace, the reason and the way for peace and goodwill, for reconciliation between God and people. You see it in John 1.29. John proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Truly, that's good news to all people, isn't it? And it's precisely what just about every New Testament writer affirmed. Paul said that with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he reconciled the world to himself. John said that salvation brings each of us a cleansing of all unrighteousness. The author of Hebrews said our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice good for all time. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. So we conclude the Christmas story in Luke 2.15. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. I know I covered a lot here. And maybe your head is spinning. It's packed. The Christmas story is packed with revelation. But here's what we explored. The Christmas story beginning with John the Baptist's birth in Luke chapter 1, it tells the entire gospel. Despite all of Zechariah and Elizabeth's discipline, striving, and commandment keeping, despite their best efforts, their self-righteousness, could not produce blessings. It all could not produce life. Instead, by grace alone, God gifted them with a son, and he was to be named John, which means God is gracious. John's name was a job description of what he was sent to do, which is to prepare for and proclaim the arrival of grace. He's the one who referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And as the Christmas story continues, every detail of Jesus' birth pointed to that message. In only a way God could have planned, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city where lambs were raised to later be sent for sacrifice in Jerusalem. He was born at a time when the hotels were full, which forced his parents to deliver Jesus in an animal shelter where they placed him in a feeding trough called a manger, a place fit for a lamb. Because it was lambing season, shepherds were nearby awaiting the arrival of newborn lambs to wrap in swaddling clothes to protect from danger and defect. They had to make sure they remained spotless for the sacrifice. Well, that's precisely how the shepherds found Jesus. In Bethlehem, in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. And as we know from the rest of Jesus' story, he was sent to Jerusalem, where he was sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins forever and for every one who accepts his gift. Truly, the Christmas story affirms the good news that brings great joy. It's that God is gracious and that God is with you and with us. And there's nothing you or I can do to change that. I hope that this message has inspired and encouraged you in this Christmas season. This is the kind of message about God's love and God's grace that God has blessed me to proclaim. It's Jesus' story, my story, it's your story. And it's a story the whole world needs to hear, don't you think? Well, would you help us continue to be here to tell this story? There's no time like the end of a year to make a gift of support. And as I said at the beginning of this message, I'm doing something special for those who help us between now and the end of this year. As a gift for your donation of any amount, I will email you a personal video blessing addressed to you by name, and I'll email it to you on or before December 31st. So if you say, Kyle, I want to help, I want to be a giver, then please make your special year-end gift now at kylewinkler.org give. And then on or before December 31st, you'll receive that emailed video blessing straight from my heart to yours. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil show. Remember, God is good and he is for you. We're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org, on our podcast and wherever you get social media. And don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening to tap that subscribe or follow button, so that you never miss a show. And I'll see you next time.